It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at neweracap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. It is time for episode 14 of Memories with Voos. We continue our uh, great journey of 54 years of uh, A's baseball with Steve Vucinich, the A's longtime equipment manager who is retiring after 54 years with the club. And, and Voos, we find you now uh, in Motown in Detroit as the A's are taking on the Tigers this week. I know they're at beautiful, brand-new Comerica Park, but certainly when you think of the Tigers, you think of Tiger Stadium and you think of Ernie Harwell and you think of all the great players in the years gone by, Ty Cobb and – and Greenberg, and so on and so forth. What What are your first memories going to Tiger Stadium back in the 70s? Well, you know what? The first trip I made here was 72 playoffs. We won the first two games in Oakland. We had to learn LeGros, Bert Campanaris face off or camping through the bat of LeGros. Billy Martin managing the Tigers at the time went ballistic trying to get at Campy. Campy knew because he was running wild on the uh, Tigers that uh, – uh, Ligrell had thrown at his feet intentionally. That's when he wound up and did a pretty good bat heap to, to the mound, and Ligrell had a duck, duck. But anyway, so we win that game. Now we come into Detroit. We just got to win one out of three. And we're the most hated people in Detroit price since the Packers upset them here some years before. But uh, we were warned, don't go out on the streets. People hate you. We had a workout. It's a funny thing. We had a workout on and Monday. Well, first of all, we flew back and we was a bomb scare on the plane just so everybody had to get off the plane, claim their own luggage, make sure there wasn't something left behind. So that delayed us. We got in probably about uh, four o'clock in the morning, had like a three o'clock workout in the afternoon. It was cold here and I'm walking back to the hotel. I had to stop at one of the few department stores that they had in here and pick something up and get back to the hotel. And there's tons of police around, plain clothes, uniforms, big police cars and i'm thinking oh god something happened people attacked one of our people well george mcgovern was running for president was staying at our hotel so that's why all the extra security so i walked up and asked somebody and they told me what was happening i just stood there and i was as close to myself uh, to the door as i am right now to get uh, mcgovern it shows you how close you could get in those days secret service was around but they weren't really blocking any uh uh any leeway off so uh that kind of set the tone we go the next day and joe coleman shuts us out we lose one nothing and we go to game four and we uh scored two runs in the top of the 10th to take a 3-1 lead and we go to the bottom of the 10th and i don't think we've still gotten anybody out the crowd went nuts they scored three runs in the 10th inning to beat us 4-3 to set a game five the next day 
But after game four, the fans stormed the field. They're tearing up the turf. We, our bullpen coach at the time was Vern Hoshite. The bullpens at that time were a little underground bunker fenced off down the right field line. And I had to send a city of Detroit cop to go get him. Otherwise, he might have been attacked. But uh, myself and then equipment manager Frank Sinchak were standing in a dugout just swinging bats at any fans that were coming close trying to steal our equipment. And there were a few people that walked away limping, grabbing their knees and things. But uh, now we have game five the next day. These are all day games, remind you. Um, and uh, we're going to whoever wins goes to Cincinnati that day. And the Reds had won game, their game five the day before. So uh, we got uh, the Blue Moon Odom starts. Of course, Reggie breaks his leg at the top of the second, trying to steal home. Uh, we wonder what's going to happen then. Hendrick goes out to center field. And uh, Vida, uh, Vida pitch, uh, Blue Moon pitches four or five innings, and Vida comes up, cleans it up. We win the game. Uh, funny thing that happened, last out is a fly ball to center field to George Hendrick, and just as he's making a catch, a whiskey bottle hit him in the back. You wonder what would have happened if that would have affected that. And um, I don't remember the situation. They would have scored a run on that play. But it was an exciting time to be in Detroit for sure. Then uh, we fly on to Cincinnati, a short flight to Cincinnati, and start the World Series two days later. Moose, when you have the, uh, the opportunity to see all the ballparks that you've seen, and you think about uh, the old freeze above the old Yankee Stadium, and you've seen uh, several – iterations of Yankee Stadium, both the, the redo when they went to shape for a couple of years and what they have now across the street. You think about the Green Monster at uh, Fenway Park and you think about the Ivy at Wrigley Field. I remember all the players when they talked about Tiger Stadium, maybe they have the most famous urinal in all of sports or they always talked about when the guys walked in the clubhouse. This is the same urinal that name your star, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, whoever used it. That must have been pretty funny seeing that happen time and time again. Yeah, it was a trough-style uh, urinal. It was probably about 20 feet set back from the dugout, which is the tunnel that leads up into the clubhouse. So you could be walking by, and anybody could be taking a leak right there. But you're right. And I think it, it ended up in Ernie Harwell's garden, and I think his wife didn't want any part of it. But it, it went to the house anyway, and where it went after that, I don't know. But it has to be the most famous urinal in all of baseball, or maybe all the world for, you know. <laughs> Bruce, when we last left uh, in the previous episode, there were the A's going to the playoffs and the A's coming up short all these times in the early 2000s. And, and you look back on how the team kind of transitioned. It seemed like it was, I don't know if it was exodus is the right word, but there was a lot of comings and goings. A lot of the stars were leaving. Some were staying, but you're saying goodbye to guys like Giambi and saying goodbye to Tejada. And eventually as you get into the mid-early 2000s there. You know, parts of the big three were were leaving as well. What what was that transition like seeing that the players have meant so much of that organization and meant so much of the success and find themselves playing someplace else. Well, and losing Giambi, that was a big blow, but we still went on to win division titles the next two years without him. But uh, I thought we were really close to re-signing Giambi, an extension the year before he left, which was, I think, in February or March of, of 2001. And in fact, we were so close that I think they were trying to set up a press conference and I don't know what, what stopped it. Um, there's been rumors his dad just said, no, don't don't sign it, don't sign it. And he had another year uh, like 2000. It could have been MVP if it wasn't for Ichiro Suzuki having the year that he had. So it was tough to see him leave. It was tough a few years later to see Tahata leave and some of the other guys. Um, 
Billy always said it's better to trade a guy one year too soon than one year too late. So he makes the trades for Hudson, which we thought was a pretty good package at the time. And we make the trade for Mulder, which worked out a little bit better for us. But the Hudson trade uh, didn't help us very much. Uh, but uh, we didn't want to see him leave as a free agent. We wanted to get something for him. So those big three, it was tough to see those guys pitch with the success each one of those had and not to take it beyond the first round of the playoffs. All the great episodes and all the great memories we've enjoyed from you and your perspective, Boos, a lot of it's revolved around the managers. And we talked about, you know, Dick Williams at the beginning and Hank Bauer. And then you, you think about Billy Martin and then Tony La Russa. We didn't spend a whole lot of time discussing Art Howe and then eventually Ken Maka taking over for him. What were those two men like? Well, Art Howe was a perfect person to replace Tony La Russa. We were, we were going in a different direction. We were going younger. Uh, we weren't going to sign big money free agents. Uh, it was more of a developmental time, and uh, Tony was in a win-win now uh, attitude, or and uh, so he went to the Cardinals. And nothing against Tony, he would have done a great job here with the rebuilding too. But Art was the right person to come in and a different coaching staff. Ron Washington on it, and we all know how effective he was with uh, guys like later on uh, Marcus Simeon, but Mark Ellis and Eric Chavez, and Miguel Tejada. And that was a key component of those, winning those years was the infield work that Ron Washington did with those guys. Um, following Art, uh, when he had a chance to go to New York, he'd actually signed a real big contract and set himself up for life. Uh, we hired Ken Maka from who was already on the coaching staff. So we were all familiar with Ken, and Ken was familiar with us, and he knew what had to be done, and he was a good X and O's guy. Um, it's funny that he gets left off or gets fired after the 06 season with two more years remaining on his contract. And we had just gone to the American League Championship Series but lost to Detroit four games. But uh, those were two both good managers. Uh, they got the most out of their players. The players loved both those guys for the most part. I think Mock had a little problem towards the end. But uh, it was a good baseball man. The X's and O's were okay. Frank Thomas, who means so much to the south side of Chicago, two-time MVP there, and he's now in the Hall of Fame. But he didn't play in the World Series in 2005 with the White Sox. He had a foot injury, and he hardly played that year, about 30 or 40 games. And suddenly the A's signed Frank Thomas going into the 06 season. What was your initial reaction to signing a, a guy, certainly with his resume, but wondering what was left in the tank? We certainly found out what was left, but in that moment, what do you remember? Well, you got to remember, too, he was hurt. You wonder if he's going to overcome that injury, and he did. He, he didn't play the full year for us. I think he got a two, two or three-week uh, late start, but uh, a, a leader. People listened to him. They loved being around Big Frank. Um, he uh, was playing for that one year, and then he got the contract with the Blue Jays when he left, another free agent to leave, but came back the following year. So um, Frank was a, a winner. He, I mean, a two-time MVP, uh, a great athlete. He uh, kind of solidified the DH position. And when he left, we brought in Mike Piazza, who another veteran, but uh, didn't have the success of Frank. Frank's success wasn't only on the field. It's in the, in the clubhouse. And I think guys really looked up to him. When you look back on that 06 season, and when we visited last week, Boos, you talked about the uh, how much pride you have in being named part of the 2022 Hall of Fame class for the Athletics franchise. And part of that is because Eric Chavez was in that same class. And you said he's one of your favorite players of all the years that you've been around the organization. When I joined the club and, and 
came on in 06, he had gone through a lot, you know, physically and certainly had had a lot of success. From my perspective, I remember Eric Chavez as the most brutally honest player. And you ask him, you do an interview with him, and he is not going to, he's not going to mince words. He's going to tell you exactly how he's playing, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And I always appreciated that this guy was so upfront about the way things were in a, in a you know, in a world of, of sound bites and little clips. You saw him every day. You're with him every day. You're with him through all the injuries and whatnot. What did Eric Chavez mean to this franchise? Well, Eric is one guy that wanted to stay, and he took a little bit less to stay here. He signed the biggest contract that we ever given out, and uh, shows that uh, his love for Oakland and the organization, fans, and he uh, had a house in Oakland. So uh, he wanted to stay, and he wanted to win here. Uh, it was a pretty good contract, but he was a gamer too. He was like Giambi. He wanted to play every day. Didn't want to take a time off, and he was more upset about any injuries that caused him to miss any time, any games. Than anybody uh he wanted to be out there all the time i'll never forget when he came up as a rookie he made a statement to the media and he was young then 21 years old or maybe even 20 and he said that uh, we had mike blowers as a third baseman all year and we acquired ed sprague jr around the all-star break both third baseman and now here comes eric who's a third baseman play a little shortstop in in the minor leagues but he's ticketed for third base especially with tejada coming up behind him and uh, he told the press, he said, he said, Ron Washington told him, don't do anything Blowers or Sprague, dude. You just listen to me. And it came out in the media kind of a wrong way. And so Blowers and Sprague knew what it meant, but they they took umbrage at it a little bit and just crucified the kid. And the kid was very cautious about talking to media right after that, make sure that he was understood whatever he said. But that was just Eric as a rookie. Now, Eric is a veteran would tutor other guys, not so much with media, uh, but uh, things to do on the field, way to act, even way to dress. So uh, Eric was a leader for us after Giambi. Boost, with all the players that you've seen since day one in 1968, and I don't mean to disparage anybody else when I, when I give you this list, but you talk about classy players that don the A's uniform, the, the three that, that jump off the page, and I know there are others, like Catfish, for instance, but the three that jump off the page for me in terms of position players with Joe Rudy, Dick Green, and then Mark Ellis. We talk about some of the superstars that this club had over the years and some of the great things they did. Mark Ellis was the steady ship uh, calming the seas, playing second base and playing with at such a, a high level with a great baseball IQ. Uh, he has to come to mind for you as well as one of, the, one of your favorite players of all time. Absolutely. I met him uh, during the winter before he had, uh, just after he got traded over from Kansas City. I think it was an uh, A-level trade. And I remember uh, somebody in the minor league says, you're going to see him sometime this year. Sure enough, he came up just a class individual, friendly, a teacher, a, uh, a great family guy. But he was he was a leader in his own way, too. Kind of making it sound like we've got 25 leaders in there. But uh, everybody looked up to Mark. Uh, when he was healthy, he was as good as anybody. Uh, he had that injury at the, in the 2006 playoffs. It cost us a little bit. But uh, just a class guy, a guy that everybody always loved being around. And we've reached out to Mark to try to hire him full-time, and he's just not ready to come back in the game full-time. With it. He wants to spend time with his family. But one of the super individuals of all time, and if I had to make an all-boost team, he'd be right there. All-boost team. We'll get to that before this year is over. You can count on that. <laughs> uh, the 06 playoffs, it, it seemed like kind of almost like be careful what you wish for because everybody was saying as the A's were getting ready to play the Twins and the Tigers were getting ready to play the Yankees that – you know, you, the, the way it turned out, you didn't want to play the Twins because they're opening at home. They had Johan Santana. 
still playing in the Metrodome where you couldn't hear yourself think. And that's what the A's were stuck with. And yet they won, you know, they swept that series. They won the first two in the Metrodome. Uh, you've been in a lot of loud stadiums, including Skydome back in the early 90s. Uh, what was uh, that 06, those two games there in the Metrodome and the big hit hits that Frank Thomas had, the, the inside the park home run for Kotze, and, of course, great pitching by Barry Zito and others? You know what? It was loud. I mean, we were in the playoffs in 89 in the uh, Sky Dome, and that was really, really loud. A bunch of the wives would go to the bathroom and just flush toilets when they heard cheering, just they didn't want to hear it. And that was in the Sky Dome. Well, Metrodome was even louder. And when you put 50,000 or how many people they had, and, and 99% of them were rooting for the Twins, it made for a very loud thing. And I don't know if you remember Barry Zito going in a windup in box because the sound was so loud and he had gotten confused or something. But it was very loud. But the two home runs by Frank Thomas, inside Parker by by Kotze, uh, gave us a 2 nothing lead. We'd been in that situation before. Only had to go home and win one. But uh, we did come home and won that game. Uh, but the game, uh, game two when Ellis got hurt and he had to go out for x-rays, it was kind of a downer. Uh, yeah, you, you would kind of say, hey, okay, the Tigers might be easier than the Yankees. Doesn't matter whoever plays well. And we were kind of rooting for the, the Tigers only because we'd already gotten beat twice by the Yankees in the playoffs. Let's do something different. Not to say, hey, uh, we advance – We'll get beat by the Tigers. We were pretty confident going in. And Milton Bradley had a great two games in Oakland, and we very easily could have split those games. And who knows what would happen after that. What about that guy, Marco Scudero, that took it over the top in game three of the uh, DS to get the A's to the ALCS? What a great personality he was on both sides of the Bay, but it really started here in Oakland. It really did. It came to fruition. Uh, a great guy, half Italian, half Venezuelan. We used to call him half and half, uh, or at least I did. Uh, I'd say, what are you today? Are you Italian or are you Venezuelan? What are you? And he'd, he'd always say, wake up, wake up. So, and I wouldn't be sleeping. But uh, he, uh, he was a great guy. You know what? I really relished his success with the Giants. I, th I thought that was absolutely awesome. I mean, I know he'd spent some time with the Red Sox too, but but uh, Marco was a class individual. He, uh, he was another good teacher, and I think he could be a manager if he wanted to be. I was driving home after the, the playoffs from the Bay Area back to Texas when the A's were eliminated by the Tigers. And I'm literally driving on the road in somewhere in New Mexico, listening to MLB radio. And that's where they made the announcement, like you talked about earlier, that uh, Ken Maka, who's still with time on his contract, was not going to be returning as manager. And Bob Guerin was stepping in. That was pretty significant, wasn't it, back? I mean, to have something like that happen under those types of circumstances? Absolutely. I mean, uh, there, there was a gap in there before the announcement was made by about Guerin because I ran into Billy at Phoenix Airport, and I thought for sure we were going to hire Jamie Quirk. And he looked like the leader in the clubhouse at the time. And when it all got down and said and done, it was Bob Guerin. But there was a gap in there. But it was a real surprise to let Maka go. I guess there had been some discord between him and Billy and the other baseball operations people. And uh, they decided to eat the contract and uh, let's go forward. So from that point, for a few years, it seemed like kind of wandering through the desert, if you will. You Jack Custer's playing. You've got a bunch of other names, guys. Guys that are, look, they've got a big league uniform on, and they had success. Jack had some success. Jack Hanahan uh, had success at third base as well. And you could pick out a bunch of names, even pitchers as well. But that seemed like it was a, a transition time for the A's organization, trying to find themselves, trying to find a way to regroup and get themselves back because we know – Billy Bean is ultra competitive. David Forrest is ultra competitive, and they wanted to get back to a postseason baseball as quickly as possible. How did you see that transition playing out over those years before things began to turn the corner? 
You know, in those years where we're experimenting with guys in different positions, I won't say the farm system was barren, but there were guys coming, but they were at A-ball, so we had to wait for them. Um, we made, we had a ton of injuries in those years. Uh, it kind of hurt us. And then, uh, you know, Bob was given four and a half years to, to manage, and I can't say it was his fault that we didn't win. But now here comes Bob Melvin, and he's a winner in the, in the past and has been, and he kind of formed a club together. We were together, and we had a bunch of guys coming. They were maybe their rookie year when Bob Melvin was taking over. So uh, you can see the transition. You can see the building. And uh, that uh, that first season that Bob was there, was the full season, and we came back from behind and beat the Rangers. I mean, we're, we're two games behind the Rangers with three to play. We win one just to guarantee the playoffs. Now we win the next two. The only day we're in first place is the last day of the season, and that was just an amazing statistic. You know, when – you watch a team that may be floundering on the field in terms of wins and losses, and that's not going to be your year. Still, the beauty of the game boost is that when you show up at the ballpark, you never know what's going to happen. And that happened on Mother's Day 2010 with Dallas Braden. Now, Dallas is, you know, five foot nothing, 100 to nothing from, as he says, you know, the other side of the tracks and stocked in the pride of the 209. And, you know, you were your first month working for the A's. You see the perfect game with Catfish Hunter. And now we got to go all the way to 2010 to see Dallas Braden. Take me through your memories of, how all that played out as grandmother there, the, the emotion on the field, the emotion for this, uh, this scrappy kid that had his moment in the sun, if you will, that day against the Tampa Bay Rays. It's funny when he gets a perfect game and uh, Pennington's making a play at shortstop. I'm going, God, make the play, make the play, make the play. And he does. He's got the perfect game. And I went down on the field. I said, make sure you mention your mother. I mean, it's just not like I had a private mother, but I kind of told that. And, and he was going to anyway, but I just didn't want that to be forgotten. <laughs> it, it was a great day. Different things happened. Uh, kind of weird during the game uh, with fans and things. The cameras going all over the place because they could feel a no-hitter or a perfect game. But uh, um when his grandmother said, stick it, A-Rod, I thought that was just a perfect finish to that day. But you're right. I always wondered what would happen if Stockton changes their area code now. What would what would Dallas do? I got Maybe maybe they make the area code 666 or something. Like that. <laughs> he had to change a lot, of his, uh, a lot of his tattoos and some of the other stuff he's got for sure. You know, you, you touched on Bob Melvin taking over. We've both been lucky to be in this game for a long time. You, you know, 50-plus years. And, you know, the travel is, look, it's charter travel. I'm not going to, you can't say that it's, it's not difficult. I mean, you, you, you walk on the plane and, and you have a, you know, a, a nice seat and, and you don't have to worry about crowds or whatnot. But that flight from Baltimore to Chicago, as it turns out, you know, the, the last night of, of Bob Guerin as manager of the A's, uh, you've been on a lot of flights, Moose. You've been on a lot of different kind of airplanes. So that, that had to be as, as uh, scary a moment. It was for me. It had to be pretty high on the list for you well i've been on some bumpy flights but never that long and never with that kind of like you're circling 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 hoping there's a break in a storm and we can land whether it be at midway or, or o'hare uh the thing was there was only three people on the plane that knew bob was ending his career with the a's myself mickey morbido and of course bob and billy didn't want speculation to start if bob wasn't on a flight so he asked bob as a friend to fly with the team and then he could fly on to the bay area the next day and bob said sure and so we're flying and we're bouncing all over. We're supposed to land in Midway and we've got these electrical thunderstorms going in there and the wind's blowing and we're bouncing all over. We go up to O'Hare, try to land over there. They've got the same problem. 
So you always have enough fuel to go farther than your destination and divert to a different airport. So we go to Springfield and uh, they don't have stairs for the aircraft. So they bring up a ladder and I see Mickey Morbido. I doubt if you've ever been on a ladder more than three feet high, scurrying down and trying to find buses, trying to find any kind of transportation to see what we can do. Checking with uh, the airline people, what they could do with the flight, if we can take off. In the meantime, we're out of ice. We're out of water. I'm sure we're out of alcohol. Some guys were actually crying. I remember, uh, I think it was Derek Barton was actually crying. He was so nervous. And um, Tito Fuentes was just giving him a ration of hell about being a baby. Uh, but the plane was bouncing all around. The players were out of control. And I just felt sorry for Bob Guerin at that time because it's his last day. And he has to remember that as the last team flight with the A's. Now he's had other great flights with the, the Dodgers, obviously, and the Mets. But but uh, it was really sad that Bob's managerial career had to go out on that note. So we ended up getting permission. They said, there's a break in the storm. We're going to go back to Midway. So we circle around again. It's still bumpy. No, we can't land at Midway. So we try O'Hare. So we go into O'Hare, and we probably landed at 4, 35 o'clock in the morning. Of course, there's nobody at the FBO, the place that handles this private aircraft, to bring out chairs for us, uh, chairs, I'm sorry, steps for us. And so we just had to sit on the plane again longer. Our buses were at Midway, so we had to wait for them to come up. Our equipment and luggage trucks had to come up from Midway, too, so we had to wait for that. And now we get into rush hour traffic. When they finally arrive, we can exit the plane and go to our hotel and get in about 6.30 in the morning. It was, it was a scary flight. It's a night I'll never forget, uh, as you will probably too. But uh, we bounced around pretty good on that flight. It's like if there's ever an advertisement for keeping your seatbelt on, that was it. Boos, you've come first full circle on many occasions talking about relationships and friendships you've made in, in the baseball world from your days starting you know, with the A's uh, in 1968. So Bob Melvin joins the club. I just wonder to that point with his time, there's a player, you know, with couple of teams in the American League, like Baltimore, and, and before we went to the Giants, and even managing uh, the Seattle Mariners before you went over to the home side. What was your r- relationship with Bob Melba to that point? You know, we always talk Cal, Cal sports because he went to Cal for one year, and I was a big Bears fan. But uh, we had a good relationship. It was very professional. Uh, uh, always made sure I said hi to him, whether it was a manager or it was a coach in Milwaukee or a coach in Detroit, wherever. Um, just a good guy, and I and I thought right then that he was the right guy to hire, even though we didn't win that year. But he was the right guy for Billy to hire, and uh, Billy had to forge a relationship with Bob for years, and got to know him. And at that time, Bob was working for the Mets, and had to get permission from the Mets to talk to him, and did. And uh, Billy, uh, Bob agreed to come over, and it was like a changing of the guard. We had the same players for a year or so, but it, it was things were going to be different. They certainly would be, and that will lead us to episode 15 when we come back next week. Boos, uh, great conversation as always. Appreciate the time, and I always love the memories. Uh, we'll talk again. Okay, enjoy it all the time. Take care. Steve Boos, and it's joining us, episode 14 of Memories with Boos. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.